This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. It's Tuesday, October 19th, and we're focused on China's missile test. The recent Financial Times reporting that China launched a possible nuclear-capable hypersonic missile this past summer is complicated. That's partially because China says it was a routine spacecraft test, but the launch caught U.S. intelligence by surprise. It's also because tensions between China and the U.S. have continued to intensify under the Biden administration. The world has seen power struggles between nuclear powers before, but not between two countries as interconnected as the U.S. and China. Should we be thinking about this in terms of a new Cold War? In a moment, Axios reporter Bethany Allen Ibrahimian on what this all means for U.S.-China relations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're joined now by Axios' China reporter, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Hi, Bethany. Hi, Nyla. Can you explain the context for what we know about what's happening around this missile test? So this is the latest in a series of pretty significant headlines about the relationship between China and the rest of the world or the U.S. and China. So a few months ago, satellite images revealed that there are hundreds of new missile silos in western China that have been constructed. We've also seen a dramatic rise in the number of Chinese bombers and jet fighters that have flown close to Taiwanese airspace. And we've also seen on on the U.S. side, more alliances and pacts that are being formed with the aim of countering China. So, for example, just recently, uh, a new pact, a new security pact was announced between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. And the U.S. actually handed over nuclear submarine technology to Australia as part of that pact. So this is the environment that we're talking about. Some pretty serious tensions here. Bethany, I think a lot of times when we hear about missile tests, that's in regards to North Korea. Is it fair to compare these two countries, North Korea and China? How should we be thinking about that in the context of this most recent missile test by China? Well, these are quite different things because if you compare China and North Korea, North Korea is very much a rogue regime. It does not participate in the international system. It has not signed on to the expected behavioral norms of the international system. You know, it's considered a rogue actor. So as North Korea continues to improve its missile program, it's really difficult to say how they would choose to use those missiles. And if they did choose to use them on a first strike basis, let's say, they would 
would have a lot less to lose, at least in terms of their international standing, their economic ties with other countries, whereas China is well situated within the international system and thus has a lot of reasons and a lot of incentive to abide by treaties that it has signed to not jeopardize its standing. And something else is that China has had nuclear weapons for half a century and and hasn't used them. So the fact that it's a, a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile, I think, is is not as alarming as it could potentially sound. To the point of these international relationships and what is keeping China in check, can we talk about Taiwan for a moment? Can you just catch us up on the increasing tensions that we've seen that China has ratcheted up with Taiwan and where this might factor into that? Sure. So the relationship between China and Taiwan has deteriorated pretty steadily since 2016, when Taiwan elected a president that was pretty hostile to Beijing. And since then, you know, we've seen a break in formal communications between China and Taiwan. China has continued to poach more of Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic allies. And as the the Trump administration and then the Biden administration have made growing efforts to reach out to Taiwan, to support Taiwan more strongly, on the international stage. We've seen China engage in what you could even call saber rattling, where, you know, in recent months, for example, they've been sending these numerous flights of bombers and fighters close to Taiwan's airspace. In addition, it seems to be a more near-term goal of Chinese President Xi Jinping to unify Taiwan with China. In the past, Chinese leaders would talk about unification with Taiwan as an ideal to be realized at some point in time in the future. But Xi Jinping seems to have identified this as a real and tangible goal that he may even try to accomplish during his tenure as president. So as we continue to unravel these relationships, that is the context of Taiwan. You mentioned earlier the context of the U.S. and U.S. foreign relations and building pacts with allies to line up people against China. Can you explain a little bit more about what we've seen happen there? Sure. So there's been quite a lot of activity. One thing that the Biden administration has done that has, again, been a continuation and a strengthening of what the Trump administration began was the Quad. So that is an informal grouping of four Indo-Pacific democracies, Japan, India, Australia, and the U.S. And under the Trump administration, this grouping was kind of revived and they had some higher level meetings of officials from these four countries. But under the Biden administration, actually just a few weeks ago, there was the very first in-person summit between the four top leaders, that's presidents and prime ministers of these four countries. Now, this grouping doesn't purely have China in mind. It's also about building infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific, helping with vaccines. But pushing back against China's authoritarianism is a clear goal. And also, NATO, in fact, just recently has said that they are now going to include China as a focus. This is very interesting because NATO is like the quintessential Cold War era treaty alliance. That's why it was founded. That's why it was created. And the EU has been pretty hesitant to get on the boat, if you will, of viewing China as in a more confrontational light. But even NATO now is beginning to see that because of hacking, because of espionage, because of technological challenges, that China really is in some ways a threat to democratic norms and values. 
Some people are calling the tensions between China and the U.S. a cold war. Do you think that's an accurate way to describe what's happening now? That's a tough question, and I think it really depends on on what we mean by a cold war. There's really only been one cold war, so when we use that term, we're thinking of the the U.S. Soviet Union era cold war, and that was characterized by. First and foremost,、uh, an arms race and fears over mutual nuclear annihilation. It also involved dividing the world into two separate blocks with some non-aligned zones, and that's where the phrases "first world," "third world," where that comes from. And also in that Cold War, the Soviet Union implemented an economic blockade. It did not have any kind of significant economic ties with the West, and the world today is completely different than. Than that world. I mean, first of all, so much of the world is economically linked, and China is, in fact, the world's top trade partner. It's you know the opposite of a self-imposed economic embargo. Also, the world has made such strides forward in nuclear non-proliferation, in rejecting the idea of a nuclear arms race. And third, kind of along the same lines, is that technology, cyber hacking, and cyber warfare really may be the virtual. Battlefield of the future, and in that kind of a world, it's not really helpful to view U.S.-China conflict through the lens of the 20th century Cold War. However, I think if we go back to the original meaning of the term Cold War itself, without thinking of you know the specific one that we're all familiar with, it's still a useful concept because the opposite of a Cold War is a hot war, meaning weapons, bombs, blood, death, this kind of thing, two armies fighting each other. And that is not happening right now between the U.S. and China. And if it continues to not happen, if we continue to not have a hot war, but we continue to have very intense struggle between the U.S. and China, that is kind of a cold war. So to reject that framing entirely, I think, is not helpful. What is more helpful is to envision the different kinds of non-hot war that the 21st century world might allow. If that terminology is, or that paradigm is dated, how should we be thinking about this conflict, especially in light of this most recent missile test that we've just learned about? Well, I think first and foremost is that it's totally. Key to think about the costs of any kind of ongoing conflict or struggle between the U.S. and China. It doesn't matter what we want to call it—a hot war, a cold war, a gray war, whatever. What are those costs? Well, to the extent that the U.S. and China put resources into struggling against one another and divert those resources from more important fights, such as the fight against climate change, that hurts all of humanity. Certainly, climate change is—I think—I'm not wrong in. Saying the most important issue of our time, and if the U.S. and China are trying to maneuver around each other and get diplomatic alliances and try to stymie each other's moves on the international stage, this again is going to divert energy away from achieving global consensus and global cooperation on issues like climate change. So there's real human costs here. How do you see the U.S. and the rest of the world moving forward from this point? Then, I think so much of the answer to that question lies in Beijing. What we've seen under Xi Jinping is a deepening ideological. 
hardline stance that the party will not accept so much of the Western values that it seems to believe are imbued in a lot of our multilateral institutions, in the openness that we support, in the internet, in trade, in people-to-people exchanges. The reason that the U.S., for, for the most part, the reason that the U.S. has taken this harder turn towards China is because of China's own hard turn ideologically. And so I wish I could say that here are the three things the U.S. can do to prevent a Cold War or some other kind of conflict with China. But at the end of the day, China's leaders have their own agency. They make their own choices, and they're just going to have to make some better choices for the rest of the world under consideration. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is the author of the weekly Axios China newsletter. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks, Nyla. Welcome back. One other thing we're watching today. Participation in youth-organized sports across the country is down because of COVID. One survey says almost one in three kids who took part in organized sports before the pandemic have since stopped. So what's going on and what will it take to rebound? We'll have that story tomorrow on Axios Today. And we're done. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we're back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.